Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chakravedi, co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a two-sided marketplace where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm thrilled to welcome Paul Watton, Chief Executive Officer of Obsidian Therapeutics. Paul, appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. It's nice to be with you guys. So we'd love to start off with your background and how you got to where you are today. Yes. So I'm a scientist originally. I got a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences from the University of Nottingham in the UK and pursued a career in the pharmaceutical industry after finishing that. So my first job was actually as a bench scientist at Merck. And then from there, I went to work for a company called Abbott. And after about five years of working in big pharma, ended up working for a small company or a smaller company in the US called Penn West and was transferred across here to manage what was a technology that was a controlled release drug technology, which had got to the point where patents had been filed. And I was brought across to the US to formulate a business plan around that. And I ended up staying in the US. This is in the early 90s. And that company actually did float on NASDAQ uh, in 1998 as Penn West Pharmaceuticals. That was my first entrepreneurial type of journey, although it was with the umbrella of a much bigger corporation uh, looking at it. And then from there, I went to work for a Warburg Pinker spin-out called Urand, uh, based actually in Italy. And then from there, I became head of business development at a company called Sky Pharma, which is another drug delivery company. And um, so I transitioned from doing a lot of strategic planning work around bringing new technologies to market to uh, doing a lot of transaction work. And that led me ultimately to Canada, where I ran a, my first CEO job was a, an anti-sense company up in Montreal. And from there, I spent about five years up there, came down to the US and started managing a company, which was a drug delivery platform. And I converted that into a specialty pharma company. It's called Antares Pharma. And that was a turnaround situation, which uh, went really, really well. And from there, uh, I actually got a call about a company which I hadn't heard of before and uh, was operating in cell therapies in Marlborough, Massachusetts, called Advanced Cell Technology, ACT, which had a great technology platform, but the balance sheet of it really had some things that needed to be fixed. But I was convinced that cell and gene therapies were going to be the way for the future. And that was in 2014. I came up to Boston to manage that. And um, we actually did do a capital raise. We brought uh, debt financing into the company, focused in ophthalmology, which is where cell therapies have actually shown considerable success and gene therapy subsequently. And that company was acquired by Astellas in February of 2016, about 18 months after I'd started. And from there, Bob Langer was one of my board members at uh, that company, which was known as a Carter just before the acquisition by Astellas. And uh, Bob asked me to look at a couple of things. One of them was a technology which was quite unique, which was an encapsulation technology. Actually, it was a chemistry platform that could hide implants from the human immune system. And what you could now do was develop cell implants that could be hidden from the human immune system. And what's important about that is you can now give foreign cells to patients. These are allogeneic cells, which you can actually make off the shelf. 
and produce any number of different types of proteins, but give these uh, implants to patients without having to give them any immune suppression agents, which you would normally need to use if you're going to prevent rejection of a small transplant like that to a human. So this is the first time anyone had been able to create these immune-privileged, shielded cell therapeutics. And that company, we did a transaction with Lilly, which was for type 1 diabetes. And that's, I understand, is going really, really well. And uh, they're also operating in the field of hemophilia and rare diseases. And from there, I had a bit of a a hiatus in my, my own career. My wife was being treated with chemotherapy at the time, and I stepped back from my job to uh, to look after her and then came across this company, Obsidian, which was introduced to me by Peter Barrett at Atlas. And uh, I'd met Peter on another board I was working on and joined Obsidian actually about a year ago. And uh, we're now building that company to become a leader in what we're going to be calling controllable cell and gene therapies, which is really the next wave of uh, cell and gene therapeutics. And it's really exciting to be back in the saddle again with a cell and gene therapy company and um, making them more safe, more therapeutically efficacious for patients and hopefully much more widely available. Great. Thanks, Paul, for that background and very interesting career trajectory over the last few decades. Um, would love to you know, perhaps start off and, and just hear about your analysis of the cell and gene therapy space right now. It's obviously rapidly evolving and has been growing quite a bit over the last couple of years specifically, but would just love to hear your 50,000 foot view on the potential of cell and gene therapy. And, and perhaps you could lay out for our listeners the various different approaches. You know, the concept of gene therapy probably goes back 25, 30 years, actually. And the challenge always was being able to deliver these entities to humans and to be able to control their activity precisely. So it was a delivery challenge in some cases. And then following that, of course, was the ability or inability to control protein expression. Um, a lot of gene therapies are actually being developed to treat monogenetic disorders where you have a deficiency of protein production, for example, in some of these enzyme replacement situations. And it's taken probably almost three decades now for that sort of delivery technology component to catch up with the promise of the idea. And now we're at the point where we actually are able to deliver both cell and gene therapeutics uh, effectively into humans. But the next part of the challenge is being able to modulate them so that they express the right amount of protein in the right place and at the right time, which is what we're trying to do here at Obsidian. With respect to cell therapies, the recent success I think we've seen with CAR-Ts in the treatment of patients with some cancer types, it's actually been remarkable how successful that has been. In the patients where this works, it's pretty much in all cases, almost like a complete cure. And uh, that is really something that I don't think any of us would have thought possible even 10 years ago, but it's happening today. And with cell therapies, in, in my experience at least, my first exposure to them was really uh, when I went to Marlborough to run Okata. And from that experience, what I saw was we had a therapeutic approach which was actually quite effective at treating patients who were in danger of going blind, either from an inherited disorder called Stargardt's disease or from uh, macular degeneration in adults, AMD. And what we were doing there was putting miniature transplants of uh, RP E cells, that's retinal pigmented epithelial cells, which we were making uh, in a lab 
and we're making them from stem cell sources and being able to differentiate them into RPE tissue, which we're then giving into patients' eyes. And uh, patients were able to recover eyesight. Three lines on an eye chart, for example, was not untypical. And uh, you could see there that the technology itself could be quite powerful if used properly. And from there, it was obvious that this was a therapeutic entity that was going to develop and become much more applicable. The nice thing about the approach that Okata was using, or it's now a Stellis in actual fact, was that the cells they were making were able to be manufactured in a manufacturing facility that could create large batches of cells that could be given to numerous patients. So it was very much more akin to a traditional pharmaceutical. With some of the CAR-T programs, in fact, all of them right now, except a couple are in the clinic, which are what are known as allogeneic approaches. That's the -the off-the-shelf approach. Most of them are autologous, which is the patient's own cells that are engineered and then given back to the patient. And that is a process which has been very effective, but it's quite time-consuming and actually quite costly to work through. And there's also a delay between actually sampling the patient's cells and then giving back to the patient. Uh, Sometimes it's a matter of three to six weeks, but in the case of patients with cancer, uh, that can sometimes be critical. So I think what we're going to see going forward is a gravitation towards the what's known as the allogeneic or off-the-shelf approach for the future, which is something we are looking at at Obsidian too. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate that sort of overview and, and some of the insights you've seen across prior companies. You know, your discussion prompted me to think about one question, which is obviously the area that Obsidian is focused on is oncology, and we'll be discussing that in greater detail in a minute. But other than oncology, are there other areas that you see as pretty promising indications where you think cell and gene therapies could be applied? Certainly. I think that ophthalmology is one area where there have been some really good successes. Spark Therapeutics had the first gene therapy that, to me, was groundbreaking. The work that's being done at Estellas on RPE is quite interesting. And I think, you know, with AMD becoming a much more prevalent disorder, uh, that will be a technology that approach that's able to treat potentially hundreds of thousands of people with uh, AMD which is actually the disease of aging. We've seen the successes in in CAR-T, but I think for the future, some of the areas we're looking at at Obsidian include not just oncology, but also things like autoimmune disorders. And one of the reasons this is of interest to us is because many autoimmune disorders can be treated with anti-inflammatory cytokines, and we are able to control the expression of those cytokines in cell lines using the cytodrive technology we have at Obsidian. And um, I think that autoimmune disorders is another area where we're going to see more and more appearances of cell and potentially gene therapies. Great. Thanks, Paul. would love to uh, now dive into some of the work that's being done at Obsidian. And you know, if you want to chat about the founding story or, or work that was initially being done at Stanford, happy to, happy to start there and just talk about where you are from a development perspective. Obsidian was put together about four and a half years ago by Peter Barrett and Michael Gladstone at Atlas Venture, together with a guy called Vipin Suri and Tarek Kassam. And they had identified a technology platform at Stanford, which had been pioneered by a guy called Tom Wandless, who's a synthetic biologist. And Tom had identified that he could control the expression 
of proteins and their activity using known small molecules. And the way he was doing this was to take a, a cytokine like IL-2, for example, and manufacture a plasma which could then be given to a cell where the cell would produce that IL-2, but it was fused to a protein, a small protein called a drug-responsive domain. And in its native state, that drug-responsive domain uh, had a couple of small mutations on it, and it got recognized as foreign by the cell because it wasn't structured correctly. And so the default state was that it would just go off to the proteasome and be degraded by the cell. But you could actually interrupt that process by giving a small molecule. And what would happen is the drug-responsive domain part of that fusion protein would restructure in contact with a small molecule. So it's basically an artificial receptor we've tagged onto, something like IL-2. And when it restructured, it, it was then able to avoid the proteasome machinery and become a normal active protein. And the level of that normal active protein was going to be dependent upon the level of the drug in the system. So now you have a rheostat. So the more drug you give, the more protein you express. If there's protein being expressed and you want to turn it off, you just stop giving the drug. And if you want to turn it on again, you start giving the drug. So it's a reversible system that allows you to modulate not just on-off, but also the up-and-down expression level of a protein. And we've applied it to numerous cytokines, IL-2, IL-12, IL-15, IL-21. And we've applied it to numerous cell types as well. So we've done any number of cells. And so long as they have a proteasome, which is most eukaryotic cells, uh, this technology is going to work and be applicable. So we're just at the start of it. We've got four programs in development, two internal in our pipeline, both in oncology. And then we have two programs in development with Bristol-Myers Squibb, which in actual fact are CAR-T programs and designed to take CAR-T into solid tumors, which is an area which is of great interest for companies. Very cool. So, you know, maybe that's a really good uh, pivot point to learn a little bit more about the technology that Obsidian is developing. Uh, obviously, it's probably come a long way since its uh, founding uh, previously and uh, obviously has a lot of interesting programs and, and collaborations. So would love to learn a little bit about the platform you guys are developing and how you sort of see that evolving in terms of the technology and attacking cancer specifically. The technology platform, as I just described, involves manufacturing a fusion protein that can be, if you will, activated by a small molecule. And we've been able to apply it to, as I mentioned, numerous cytokines. We've been able to now apply it to transcription factors, which is a relevance to gene therapy where you can actually modulate protein expression by controlling transcription factors. And we've actually used a number of small molecules to do this. All of them are FDA approved. We've used things like, um, actually even Viagra has been used to, uh, to work with this system. And the drug that we are focusing on right now is a drug called acetazolamide as our controlling agent. And acetazolamide is a drug that was originally approved in the 1950s for high blood pressure. It's actually a diuretic. And the nice thing about acetazolamide is that it has quite a wide dosing range, which gives you lots of points on the dial to regulate protein expression. It acts on what's known as a carbonic anhydrase enzyme. So we're able to control a well-known domain. And uh, we've now been able to regulate not just numerous cytokines, but this acetazolamide is also able to 
regulate numerous different types of cells as well. So it's broadly applicable. We do have other drugs we can work with. And I think the breakthrough for me when I started at the company was recognizing the potential of acetazolamide because it's a very, very safe drug with a very good safety record and can be given at high doses. But also the other thing that's important here is that its pharmacokinetics are beautiful for a situation like this because the drug has actually quite a short half-life in humans. It's anywhere between four and six hours. So it gives you a sort of four to six hour period where you can actually control protein expression. You can keep it going for as long as you like by continually dosing the drug. But if you want to turn it off or tone it down, then you can do that within just a few hours of removing the drug. Very interesting. Now, when you think about the approach, when it comes to the technologies that you guys are having to develop, it sounds like there's definitely an aspect of small molecule selection and that's involved. I'm assuming there's also a biologics component as well, since you guys aren't explicitly developing the cell therapy or are you guys using sort of existing platforms? Could you just walk us through perhaps the different aspects of the technology platform or the technologies you guys have to develop to make the whole solution work? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I think one of the fascinating things for me, so I started out at Merck and the first drug I worked on was Zocor. And so that's the about 30 years ago, actually. But I started out in this industry as a small molecule person, developed a few products uh, that had small molecules as their basis, of course, and actually did quite a lot of pharmacokinetic work when I was working at Abbott in particular. And I came into Obsidian and we're now working on very elegant synthetic biology approaches to new therapeutics. But what was fascinating for me was the fusion of what I'd learned 30 years ago together with this new synthetic biology technology and being able to understand the link between the two. And the link is basically traditional pharmacokinetics of uh, small molecule drugs. And if you like, to some extent, a bit of traditional uh, drug receptor pharmacology. And so for us to be able to make this system work, we have to understand firstly the pharmacokinetics and disposition of the small molecule drug. We have to understand the cell types we're working with and how to engineer those. We also have to understand how to make these drug receptor domains and the cytokines we have to understand how we can actually manufacture those fusion proteins. So the plasmids that we have to manufacture for instructing cells to do all that is work that we do in-house at Obsidian. We also use a lot of in silico technology to design these on screen. And it's actually really fascinating just to see this brand new technology uh, of synthetic biology dovetailing with traditional pharmaceutical products and creating these therapies now, which will really make a difference, I think, for patients, particularly in oncology. And more importantly, actually, I think giving patients and physicians much more control over the therapies that they're being either asked to take or being asked to prescribe. And I think the element of control that we're providing physicians uh, is extremely important here for these cell and gene therapies. Hmm. It's really interesting. Like As you walk through that sort of set of competencies that Obsidian has to develop, right, and master in order to deliver mm -hmm. a solution. It reminds me of an analogy from the conventional electronic technology world where you're sort of pulling together these different building blocks, right? Memory, uh, hard disk, CPU, et cetera. Right? And it's the emergent behavior between those components that creates something really interesting. However, unlike the traditional electronics in biology, there's a lot of stochasticity, right? Something always doesn't work the same, right? In a biological context, you're mm -hmm. lucky if it works, you know, 90% of the time, but it's really, you know, less often than that. I'm curious, like, as you start to think about these different combinations of 
as you pointed out, pharmacokinetics and pathway biology, et cetera. How are you seeing the stochasticity of biology drive specific pairing or solutioning, if I could use that phrase, for cytodrive? Actually, that is a really good question because a lot of what we use as, if you like, building blocks for the eventual product, the drug is, if you will, off the shelf. Some of the cell chassis we're using are off the shelf. If you're looking at a, um, a binder for a CAR T, a lot of those are now publicly available. And it's putting them all together in this overall product and linking them the way we do at Obsidian that I think makes us special. And one of the things we have learned as a result of that is that probably the easiest way to say this is no two cell types are the same. So you're always going to learn, you're going to have to modulate your approach and adjust it to different cell types that you might be working with. And um, I think that's part of the technology. And the other components of this, actually, which I forgot to mention earlier, is the the technology around transfection of these cells with the plasmids, for example, that we're using to instruct them to manufacture proteins. We're using viral vectors. So at the company, we also have a lot of expertise now in packaging this type of approach into viral vectors to be able to transfect cells efficiently. And we're now at the point where we're starting to think uh, much further forward now in terms of how we start manufacturing this at scale and making it something that could be reproducible on a large scale, but recognizing that cells are quite complex little things and knowing how they're going to behave in the same way that you might predict an electronic circuit behaving is far more complex. There's a bit of black art to this. Yeah, you know, what's interesting in the cell and gene therapy space, more so than some of these other treatment modalities, is that as you were describing it, the process development that you undertake is part of your product. And, you know, obviously that's that's only as strong as the team that you develop and, and would love to, to understand how you guys have staged team development, given the importance of process in what you're doing. Yes, and it goes to company culture as well. So yeah. the... The company I inherited was predominantly a research group and full of uh, very smart, younger scientists working on technology that was really cutting edge. And I have been around for over 30 years now in the drug industry. But one thing that I tried to do early on was recognizing that we had a really bright, young an able research team, then complementing that with a very experienced management group that had been able to take not just small molecule drugs, but also other biologics through the development cycle. So one of my first hires was Catherine Steeman Breen, who's um, head of research and development, our chief research and development officer. And Catherine had a stellar career at Amgen, Regeneron, and more recently Sarepta. And uh, Catherine has managed a lot of development programs on a global basis and has built a team underneath her, which includes reg affairs, program management. We've got just recently hired a clinical oncologist who's a world-class expert in leukemias. And so we've actually built this very experienced team now at the top of the organization. And we're filling out the management team as we speak because it's really important to have that familiarity with the, the development process and to make sure that you get things right. And one of the challenges with cell therapies, as an example, is that the choices you make very early on in developing a cell therapy last with you for the rest of that product life cycle. And one small misstep, literally right at the start of that process, could manifest itself all the way down the line into a much bigger problem later on that you just don't see happening. 
Uh, so it's really important to make sure you have all things like the compliance around the cell lines you're working with worked out. You have to understand what the regulatory implications of some of the changes you make when your engineering cells can mean further down the road to an extent that you don't see with small molecule drugs where you can just change batches, for example, very easily. But if you're dealing with an allogeneic cell line, the choice of cell line you make from day one sticks with you for 20 to 30 years during the whole of that product life cycle. And uh, bridging that to another cell line in the future, if you have to, could be extremely difficult and expensive. So you have to make sure you make those right choices from day one. And I think that's where having a very experienced team uh, running the development side of things complements a sort of very creative and cutting edge research team, which is often what you need to start a company like Obsidian on the road to success. And that also comes down to culture because you're now merging two different cultures, right? You've got the sort of freewheeling creative culture in the research group, and then you've got the more regimented approach that development groups use <laughs> to get products across the line yeah. in a regulated industry and dealing with the FDA. And putting that sort of two-component system together is really challenging. But at the end of the day, the most important thing about this is just picking the right people to fill the spots. Yeah, great point. And, and I bet that is uh, uh, the importance of that is extremely highlighted right now, given the current situation and something you said off air, which was that, you know, this is probably one of the, the most challenging times that you've had to deal with as uh, as an executive. How's the team holding up at Obsidian? And, and are there any, you know, let's say, salient lessons learned for some of our listeners in terms of how to navigate in, in the age of COVID-19? Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, one of the first things I did when I came into the company, and this has been something that I've worked with for over 25 years, is implement a pretty good strategic planning process into the company. And I use that not just as an opportunity to identify the plans, but also our contingency plans. But it's also a really great way of getting a senior management team together, thinking about a common set of problems and working our way through those intellectually. And it means that when you do start executing against that plan. It's been a bit of a dress rehearsal with the uh, planning process itself. It also helps teams to bond as well. But we didn't foresee this COVID thing coming. And we were able to react, I think, better to it because we did have plans. We were able to go back to the playbook and see all the things we had to do and where we might encounter difficulties along the line. I do anticipate that there are going to be some inevitable slowdowns of progress, whether it's negotiating contracts, things like that. But ultimately, I think our plan is is one that we can still continue to execute against. And um, I think that's really, really helped us. And um, a couple of things that happened to us along the way, I mentioned this when we were talking earlier, but we hired an IT guy in who wasn't just a guy who fixes computers or installs them for you, which is what a lot of small biotechs end up bringing in. But we hired a guy in who is really more of a communications expert in IT, who was able to build us an R&D system that enabled us to communicate better as a team. This was about six months ago. We actually used Microsoft Teams to do this. We were able to implement all the right electronic lab notebooks, for example. We were able to set up all the right communication tools for the group to work both internally and externally as it happens. And now in this environment, we have transitioned almost seamlessly to using Microsoft Teams on a daily basis. We have a management team every morning where we can all interact with each other and see each other online. And we've got these communication tools which enable our guys in the lab to communicate with each other effectively. We have in-house messaging that people can connect with each other directly in real time. And we've just done our first 
all-hands meeting online where everyone was on a computer listening to the management team sharing some of their thoughts about the way we're heading. So that IT hire actually was one of those fortunate things that happens. Um, we did, did identify that IT need in the planning process, but implementing it and just finding the right guy ahead of this time we're facing now was extremely fortunate. And I think, you know, the definition of luck in my book is when preparedness meets opportunity. And this is exactly what happened to us here. Certainly sounds like it. I think as you look to the future of um, life sciences and uh, the industry, last question we often like to close with is, do you feel like we're in the golden age of biotech right now? Yes, I do. I think that the advances that, that have been made in the last, particularly the last decade with cell and gene therapies becoming reality, but just a much better understanding of disease diagnosis and the recognition that a disease like cancer, for example, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach that's going to work. It's an individual's disease. And I think that uh, some of the diagnostic procedures that have been developed and some of the ways we can treat patients now are much better tailored than they were even 10 or 15 years ago. And that's going to apply across the board in many different diseases. And I think that biotechnology has contributed greatly to this. And um, you're starting to see this approach being used more and more frequently now, where we're recognizing that patients are individuals and they're not statistics. And that's where we're really starting to help improve therapeutic outcomes for everybody. Well, thanks, Paul, for taking some some time to chat today. It was really interesting to hear about your, your career background, what you're seeing in the cell and gene therapy space from your vantage point at Obsidian and, and obviously the, the exciting work that's that's happening there. We hope to do this in person the next time around. Yeah, it'd be great to meet you guys uh, when we're allowed to meet each other. <laughs> well, thanks, Paul. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.